Okay, so here we are with uh, another one of the High Performance Practitioner interviews, and I'm delighted to be here with Tony Strudwick from Manchester United. Uh, I suppose one of the grandfathers of sports science in football, unfortunately, Tony. Um, what I want to explore over the next 20 or 25 minutes really is just how sports science uh, within professional football has changed over the period of time you've been in the sport. So maybe just as a starting point, I, I wonder if you'd just give us some kind of an insight into how you actually got into the game in the first instance. Yeah, so pretty much uh, like like many people that drifted in, into the sports science sector, I was a failed footballer, so I wasn't quite good enough. So for me, the, ne the next best, best thing was to keep involvement. So... Uh, I played youth team level at Colchester, Colchester United back in the late 80s as a young boy. Uh, wasn't clearly never good enough. I could could say that I had an injury, but that would be lying. But um, so again, not not quite good enough. But uh, stayed on at school. Essentially, got got me A levels. Then went to to Loughborough University, where I, where I studied a um, it was a degree in phys ed and, and sports science. So at, at the time, it was. Um, Relatively new, uh, Loughborough, although Loughborough is quite an, an established university in terms of research and, and, and teaching, being an old P college back in the day. So I, I did an undergrad for three years, and then 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 decided to go uh, uh, out to, to America for two years, where fundamentally it was more about coaching, coaching young and developing young players, and and of course that sort of coincided with the growth of or the expansion of uh, of US soccer. Uh, when they held the World Cup um, post post 1994, so I spent two years there. Realised that uh, sports science was was still the the pathway that, that I really, really wanted to go into, and as much as, as a sports science, it was a, it was a football as well. So that was always the great the leading passion. It was sports science, but the driving factor was was, was was clearly football. Went back to Loughborough to do a do a masters in again sports science, phys ed and sports science. Upon the completion of that, uh, there was an opportunity that arose, and, and at the time, come 97 stroke 98, there wasn't too many practitioners or too much sports science being delivered. Uh, you were probably one of the, one of the few that, that were at, at Middlesbrough, and there's, there's that sort of growth. There was, uh, it was Cooley at, at Tottenham Hotspur, so it was in his infancy, and I think how how it was being delivered back in the late 80s was pretty much uh, athletic conditioners. Daily Thompson type type model where one fitness coach would go to to Leeds on on a Tuesday as a conditioning session, go to another club a Sheffield Wednesday on, on on a Thursday. So, and it was it was probably it typified where the English game was at really, Chris, because it, it was more about okay, I think coaches recognised that there was a requirement for for the the game was changing, um, recruitment was changing, everything in the game was was changing. It, it was. It was uh, it was post sort of this whole movement about the charter for quality and how Wilkinson. So I think that's what football clubs really did. They they just wanted a, a fitness coach to come in on one one given day that had no real understanding of of, of how the week, work, weekly you know, weekly work looked. Deliver a session and then then move on to the next week. So it wasn't coordinated. And it's not to, to dismiss that because there were, there was still quite a lot of good things going on. So an opportunity arose in, in a Premier League club, which is Coventry, and it, it was a, a PhD position. It was quite unique at the time. It was it was through Tom Riley, who uh, who really was it was the grandfather of, of of soccer science. So that was it, really. So it was a PhD program based in house at Coventry. So and and pretty much. 
from day one, it was just she's thrown into it, this professional environment at Coventry, where Gordon Strachan was the manager. Um, a well-developed academy structure, I must say. It was a very good academy, some good coaches. Uh, and I think the great thing about that, Chris, was that I was totally Im immersed in all the areas of performance, sports science, a little bit of, of the psychology. And, and while I wasn't a particular specialist in any of them areas, what it did do, it gave me a real global perspective on on what it is to train with with elite players, and I think that was that, that was that was really an unbelievable experience, and it, it, it held me in great, it gave me a great foundation really. So that that was really where it was at in terms of where sports science per se was at at that particular moment in time. We'd had clearly Arsene Wenger had, had sort of moved over from France and. Um, it, it sort of introduced a few few ideas, not sports science per se, but more about the value of stretching and nutrition. And, and of course, at the time, he was recruiting big French players, and that was at the time that was the future of, of what football would yeah. represent. We had essentially the, uh, the, the the Scandinavian influence in Paul Borsum and Jens Bangsbo, and uh, and their ideas really that that sort of gained stock in in, in Scandinavia that were. Uh, that were sort of that were infiltrating into to certain clubs, so it, it was it was the early foundation. And like I say, there wasn't too many of us involved at the time that were full time sports scientists. Um, so it, it was it was in his infancy. In those days, I mean, my memories in those days was that sports science as a as a discipline was something that an awful lot of people were pretty wary of. I mean, it was a nice word, a nice term. Uh, it was quirky, and people liked to uh, to hang uh, a little bit of faith on it. Mm. But it, it did actually take an awful lot of selling, both to the coaches and to the players. I mean, did you? What were your experiences yeah, in the I'm, early days of actually yeah, trying to convince I, people? I mean, looking back, it feels even now. We spent twenty years trying to justify the the, the, the sports science position, and like what you're saying, you're working with with coaches that that wanted. That wanted to have almost not necessarily a tick the box because I think that probably does them a disservice, but they wanted a fitness coach. They wanted sports science because they saw where the game was going. But the actual selling bit was very, very. That, that was the biggest challenge in the job. Yeah. So you're coming in. What tools have you got? Now you know you, you fast forward. You know, 18 years later, where we're at now, and we've got this advent of technology and GPS analysis and the wellness and all these markers that, that all these tools are available. But back then. All we really had was intuition and probably a set of heart rate monitors. So here you are, you know, fresh out of university, wanting to change the world, so to speak. In fairness, the players were, were, were probably an easier sell for me than, than the coaches because um, that probably, again, coincided with the, the rise of the Premier League. Salaries were increasing, so I think the players got it. Yeah. Um, so that wasn't always... Uh, that wasn't always a difficult sell. The difficult sell was was, was essentially changing the way that that, sp that football in particular had operated for so many so many years. Uh, and you have to. And university doesn't pr prepare you for that. So you're in an environment. You've you've set up, for example, you want to do test. You wanted it, back then. It was want to do testing pre-season. So you'd set your test up. You go out. You'd set up. And then at the last minute, coach, no, I don't want to do that today. So, you know, you got two options. You either deal with it and move on. Challenge it, but you got to deal with it, uh, or you start again and you keep chipping away. And I think that's that's where we, we were at, at that particular moment in time. And it was almost trying to justify why you do what you do and and the benefits of okay, if if we 
if we adopt an organised approach to, to the way that the training process works, this is this is what it's going to yield. So it, it was some fun times back then. Do you, th do you think in those days, though, as well, I mean, I, I totally relate to, and I can remember mm. the days when all you had was that... Uh, you know, 20 heart rate monitors uh, and a bunch of uh, conditioning and fitness drills and the like. And you actually were more dependent upon your personality and your ability to establish relationships. Maybe that's been lost a little bit with, you know, people have got so much technology nowadays yeah. that some people actually hide behind. Yeah, I mean, I, I, would, I would definitely agree with that, Chris. I mean, I think, you know, I always say that, that now really... You don't train spreadsheets, you train athletes and you work with athletes as opposed to spreadsheets. And the big challenge now is that we have some incredibly gifted sports scientists you know, graduating from university. Uh, and like you say, really, they look in terms of the, the process, they, they, it's more sort of analytical based, it's more uh, process based where we've probably gone away from the actual athlete and the person th themselves. and. There was almost a uniqueness at the time, and it, it was quite fresh back then because, because like you say, you had to rely on that that bond that you had with the athlete. Because essentially, what you're trying to do, you're you're, you're trying to to sell a product which at the time was sports science or, or, or conditioning or nutrition or whatever it was, uh, and you you rely on people skills, you rely on your soft skills, you rely on your selling capabilities, and. And I think that's probably what's been lost in the new generation that, that's really graduating now. And certainly the, the programme we've got at Manchester United is more about, we're, we're taking some really, really gifted graduates, as I said before, but they're missing out on that because they're coming straight in at the top level. You know, in terms of a maturity cycle, you know, we, we, we've gone from the high performance, we're at a very, very mature level and they've not really had to get that foundation in place. So the big challenge now is that there will still be athlete issues there'll still be people issues that you've got to deal with um, and again one of the things on that you know I'm looking now to recruit when we're looking to recruit these young graduates is is, is recruit the personality and then train yeah. the skill thereafter yeah. and I think that's really really critical Do, I mean having said that and you know hopefully there'll be there'll be a number of people um, who are in that position wanting to um, maybe get a position with Manchester United Man City or whoever um, looking in on this interview, um, if the universities are not giving them those opportunities and those people skills, where, where should they be going then to actually maybe furnish them better to come and um, yeah. dovetail with what it is you're trying to achieve? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really good that's a really good point, Chris. Is that there has to be a pathway, like in, in any any industry in any any uh, any profession, you have to have a pathway into high performance sport. So here we are, really now at high performance sport and. And again, back in the day, you and I, we got the qualification, which was a sports science. That allowed us the, the credibility in terms of, you know, from, the, from an intellectual perspective. But then you still had to learn to be a practitioner. So there still needs to be in-house training. There still needs to be better in-service away from the club. Because as you well know, Chris, once you're in a club environment or this high-performance environment, you are totally absorbed. And it's very difficult to then go out and, and learn and learn the other bits that really that are going to take you on to a, to a different practitioner level. I mean, just sort of switching it across a little bit, one of the, th one of the biggest challenges that I've found uh, working in professional football actually comes from the players themselves because the information and the knowledge that we have traditionally had access to is now actually, it's open access yeah. to everybody. And players are intelligent people yeah. and they do care. They are professional, they do care, they do read. Mm. And then 
the result of that is that they'll come to you with questions and challenges and and, uh, and queries regarding what it is that you're trying to do. Do you yeah. find that increasingly? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, I mean, what 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 we're moving more in towards now is is very much a self self managing athlete, and, and and they're switched on to to like you say, you've only got a, a press of a button, you've got the internet, which um, which is full of blogs, it's full of research articles and so on and so forth. So. Our job now as practitioners is almost to reduce the noise, and we often have players at all levels, academy right the way through, coming that they they read something in a men's health magazine or this kind of exercise, and and I think that's probably why you've still got to be at the forefront of, from a research point of view, you know, what what's, what still works on a contemporary level, you know. So we've got to back that off and say, well, okay, I understand that, and we've had loads of issues. I won't go into to where athletes have come in and. You know, they've heard from the latest guru from from Australia yeah. or from from Europe, and this is the way to train, and so on and so forth. So, that's where you've got to have a, have a solid stance, and uh, and again, it, it's selling the features of what you do and and what's unique to, to to your environment and what was unique at Manchester United. This is the way we train. This is the way we prepare. Maybe different to to way that Arsenal, Chelsea, or uh, or Liverpool do it. So, uh, you've got to keep your identity there, but by the same token. Like you say, I mean, we're in a, in a very, very fast-paced, dynamic environment where information is accessible to, to, to all and sundry, and you've got to strip, strip through that noise. And so building on that point there, then, I mean, I think you're absolutely right that, um, yep, there are different cultures in the different clubs, mm. but then there are micro-cultures within clubs whereby sure. you try to get to the, the, the core of what defines an individual athlete. How far do you think we've we've come in terms of being able to deal with the individual needs and requirements uh, of athletes in professional football? Um, that's a really good question, Chris, and I think that's probably something that, that I, I'm not quite sure we've really nailed that. If I'm, if I'm, if I'm perfectly honest with you, I think what um, every environment, every high performance environment, will be unique, and I think that's why it's very difficult to just take one model from rugby or, and, and just plonk it into in, in, into football and expect it to work. Uh, whatever you do, I think there's a life cycle in terms of, of, of culture from, from almost growth to inception to development and then at high performance and, and sometimes it cracks and you have to redevelop that over you know six, seven years, which is why it's very difficult to be in one place for so long. Um, but whatever you do from a cultural perspective, it, it's got to be authentic, it's, it's got to have an identity around it and, and like you say, it, it's got to have the individual, it's got to be player-centred. Now there are certain things that the the Premier League are introducing from a young age about these individual learning plans and making it individual and bespoke. And the big challenge for us is is to well this this is our, our culture at Manchester United or Liverpool or Arsenal. But within that, we we have got to really respect the athlete uh, and, and treat them as individuals. And and that's a bit that's a big challenge, particularly in, in the modern world where you're recruiting players from South America, from Africa, and uh, and Europe. Um, you know, we have it here is that we we recruited a player recently that from from sort of an Argentinian from who played in Spain that never really had a a background of of strength and conditioning and or sports science. Yeah. You know, and you can't just expect that player to come in and go right. We're enforcing in the Man United way on that player, and you've got to grow with it. They've got to respect your culture, and I think that's the challenge now is they've got to respect what you do. But and then we have that mantra is that you know. You know, respect the athlete, do no harm, but do something. So whatever they, you know, they've got to do yeah. something that buys in, into that. But it's a, it's a tough balance, Chris. I mean, it's it. You know, you've hit on the, the kind of almost a 
um, an issue of transition. Mm. So you could have transition whereby players are coming into the club from a totally different culture. Yeah. You can have transition where players are going from your youth environment into the senior environment, which clearly you've got great experience of at Manchester United. Or you could have the uh, transition where you've got a new manager with a new culture yeah. uh, coming into a club. How important in your view then is that you, you actually have some degree of patience to allow that tr transition to occur within a sensible period of time rather than just impose everything on them at once? Oh, I, think, I, I, think, I think we're always invariably always managing transitions. We, it was quite unique. at. Um, I mean, I've had that at various clubs that I've been at. We, 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 sometimes you have these, these, these quick turnaround clubs um, where the head coach is there for, for 18 months, two years, moves on. I think at Manchester United we were very fortunate we had Sir Alex in, in charge for such a long time, although you know, we, we've had transitions thereafter. But, but managing that, that transition with different ideas and I think what you've got to realise as a sports scientist or as a practitioner is that um, there's always there's always different ways of doing it and you, you can't just enforce, no, this, this is, has got to be this way, you've got to keep evolving. So we've got to let things settle. So, so very, very quickly after Sir Alex departed, we had David Moyes that, 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 that had come from Everton with, with, with some different ideas uh, and we have to manage that some of the good things he brought, some of the things that we had to retain uh, that were unique. And then we have to sell that to him as well because realistically, a new coach is, is under pressure from, from when he moves when he comes in the door. So he's not going to buy into it straight away and he's yeah. going to want to enforce his own identity. And it's the same thing we're going with, we, well, we've had, we, we've probably sort of through that now with Louis, Louis van Gaal in that um, he's brought a very organised approach to training and he's brought a very sort of rigorous way that he likes to, his philosophy that he likes to, and we have to adapt to that and vice yep. versa and, and we have to win him over. Uh, and I think that's probably where you've been at clubs where you have this sort of, uh, th this movement of, of, of coaches and staff in that, you know, retain your identity but be flexible enough to, 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 to adapt to, to new ideas as well. And I think that, that, that's, that's, that's a challenge. I think just kind of moving on a little bit, I mean, one of the other challenges that uh, I'm sure you experience an awful lot more than I ever did is the number of people that come knocking on your door that, were, that are offering you a new way of thinking, a new way of working, a new technology yeah. that's going to add that 2%, 3%, 5% mm. um, to the capacity of your team to deliver. Yeah. And I feel that as the senior practitioner, you're probably the gatekeeper to that. I mean, I wonder if you just, without being specific about any particular uh, technologies, but yeah. talk about the role that you, you obviously have in ensuring that um, when you do um, evaluate and maybe adopt new ways of thinking and working, that they are actually credible and possibly proven. Yeah. I, th I think that's one of the, um, I mean, when we, when we took on this role at, at Manchester United, I think one of the the critical features that we, we had a tie-in with the university, so it was it was Tom Riley again, and yeah. we developed in-house uh, what we called the Performance Lab, which was at the time it was basically accredited. Um, it was probably one of two, I think, uh, or a bit like what you, you try to achieve uh, at Middlesbrough. So what that allowed us to do, Chris, was was to ensure that whatever we did in-house was reliable and objective, because if we're making smart decisions on players and, and performance, then we have to have a faith in, in what we collect. So that was more about controlled measures. And beyond that, what grew out of that was the fact that whatever we, we go with, we, we, we like to be innovative, we like to, to push the boundaries, we like to, to be at the front end of, of, of changing things and, 
you know, sometimes running with something that we feel intuitively works for us. But but the the other flip side of that is that we have a responsibility. Uh, and the way that we've done it here really is that, like you say, maybe it's not necessarily me just the gatekeeper, but we have a we have, we have a strong team, you know, five or six five or six guys in that team that really um, smart guys, but just think through it, you know. Yep. Realistically, it's got to be evidence-based, and it's got to be able to be, uh, you know, purpose-fit for, for for our requirements in here. So, a lot of the time, we are dealing with noise. You know, some of the, these heart rate variability measures that some of these these gizmos and toys that come in and they last a couple of weeks, and then they end up in a box. This nice fancy <laughs> box that they come in on, and all these types of analysis that that you know. But that, that's what we would do. We've got sort of Richard Hawkins in place and, and, and some of the guys and, and they'll do a test and retest. And I think that, that that's the thing here is that we have a responsibility to the player's welfare as well. So what we can't, can't do is just, you know, get, get a new piece of technology and throw it on a player. We'll, we'll, have to, we'll have to go through that process ourselves as staff and really evaluate it. And, uh, and in addition to that, we, we, we've, we've got a, a strong doctor who, who gets that and... If we're going to justify anything, then we've got to go through the appropriate measures. So, I mean, that's the challenge. Yeah. You, you want to be innovative and, and out there, but by the same token, it you have to have, have a level of responsibility and, and quality control. I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I might be. I think I'm right in thinking, though, as well, that one of the important things that you have at Manchester United is um, there's a long-term view here. Mm. So you're not just looking two months, three months, six months yeah. down the road with the threat of a manager moving on and everybody yeah. else getting cleared out. Yeah. But the club itself has actually invested in sports science yeah. and in actually pushing the boundaries forward that little bit. Yeah, we've been really, really lucky here, Chris. And, um, you know, it started with uh, Sir Alex. And I think at the time, Sir Alex felt that... Um, you know, he had that discussion with the doc about you know what should we do with, with sports science. He, he then discussed it with the, the then chief exec David Gill, who was very much around about asset management and long 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 term and longevity. So, for us, it was about managing. You know the, the transition of, of of them players of Paul Scholes, Gary Neville, Ryan Giggs through 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 the, through their performance part of their career and and allowing to make 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 sort of decisions on that. Uh, fortunately, you know. Uh, in the, when, when Sir Alex and, and David left the club, we, we, we've got a, a chief exec or uh, executive chairman in uh, Ed Woodward, who's very much of the, the same. It's, it's long term. It's about long term development. It's trying to be at the forefront of what we do. Um, and I think while we're there's a level of responsibility, it's not it's not a case of where we can go out and, and, and spend loads and loads of money because we're Man United. But by the same token, we, if we justify the business case for for development of staff for development of resources to support our players long term. Uh, we've, we've been very lucky that and from an executive perspective, we've always been really, really well backed. So we have that culture of long-term sustainability. That's always been yeah. sort of part of the mantra. Um, and that, 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 that's very, we've, we've been very, very fortunate and that's probably unique to, to Manchester United and we've been well supported from, from an exec level. Oh, that's fantastic. One more point, just, yeah. just to finish off with. Um, we've gone these 15 or more years in certain people's cases. I think you right. mentioned the late 80s. It was the 90s. Yeah, yeah. Um, Sorry, 90s, yeah. yeah. Uh, we've, got, we've gone those 15 years or more. Yeah. Sports science has clearly become increasingly a part of the, oper the day-to-day operation of professional mm. football. What do you see as 
the next big thing in terms of applied sports science, not necessarily through the university laboratories mm. and the like, but something that we can actually take and use in everyday practice? I think that there's certain challenges going forward. One, one, one's certainly going to be a challenge is, is for us to, in the... In this multidisciplinary environment, we, we now operate with physiotherapy, with sports psychology, with analysis. It's still finding ways to, to bring that team together. And I think from a high performance perspective, that's going to be a challenge. Who runs that? Who manages it? And how we still integrate? Um, that's going to be a challenge because there are only so many hours in the day. There are only so many hours in the week. So I can see us going toward more of a modular experience, almost like a university experience of football. So I think these universities of football where players will have you know, segments of psychology, skill on skill based stuff, um, cognitive work and, and so on and so forth. So that's a challenge how we how we, we maximise player potential. Um, but still ensuring that, that we keep it real and we, we, we keep it what it is about and it's about you know, it, it's about risk and it's about, you know, elite sport and it's about that fun element to it as well. So not too yeah. business like I mean, we talk about it all the time, so uh, probably the, the other growth is going to be in, I think, from a physiological perspective, um, I think we, we, we're well attuned and we, we're quite advanced over how we feel best to, to manage individual weeks, individual players and, 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 and sort of like the calendar year. The cognitive perspective in how we deal with pressure, um, how, we, how we can facilitate sort of quicker decisions because... If we're led to, to believe the research, if the game's getting quicker, Chris, that means that uh, players are going to have to make quicker decisions under pressure uh, and the world's become more complex. We talk about this VUCA yeah. world, this volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous world that we've still got to be agile in, in that and we've still, got, we've still got to have that element of unpredictability in, in the sport. So that's probably going to be an area, that, that cognitive bit, how we, we manage that. Um, and I think beyond that, I think we still need to, to retain as a, as a sports science industry. We need to retain our identity where where we sit, you know, where we sit in the coaching process, uh, how we align ourselves really to to the head coach, how we align ourselves to the players, um, and then beyond that, the big thing for us is to ensure that we that we keep selling 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 it back, like you know, going back almost to to the old days where it was athlete centred. You know, and you had that connection with athletes, and I think the big challenge for sports science and high performance sport in general that's becoming very process driven is don't lose sight of of uh, the, the, these young young lads that just enjoy it. at times they enjoy sort of uh, playing football. So making sure we still engage with the athletes, and I think that's it about athlete engagement. That's the big thing for me. Fantastic, good, and fascinating. Okay. Thanks so much for giving us half an hour of your time. We'll let you get back to uh, shifting paper around on your desk. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I'll just say thanks very much. Great. Thanks, Cheers, Tony. Thanks. Cheers.